I'm just going to get my timer out. Uh, just give me a moment. I, I am the timer. Yeah? <laughs> Amen. I'm a timer. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to um, just acknowledge our men's soccer team. And for those of you who don't know, we were at a soccer tournament gathered with uh, some rehabilitation centers and some churches in the south. And, uh, and uh, our guys just uh, brought in all the goals that actually came from Ryan Giggs at the back. <laughs> we didn't make it due to the semis, but there's always next year. Um, also want to uh, wish and acknowledge uh, Auntie Daphne. Where's Auntie Daphne? Auntie Daphne, give us a, a wave. Hallelujah. Auntie Daphne is celebrating a birthday. Wow, you are not getting any old Auntie Daphs. Uh, just uh, aging so gracefully, yeah. and we've had a number of anniversaries. We've had the Williamses. I think they're still celebrating. Or with, with the Williamses, uh, they're still okay. They're still partying and celebrating the anniversaries. We've had the Leons also celebrating the anniversaries, and we've also had the, the Chibas. I know they've celebrated uh, the anniversaries. But if, anybody else? I'm leaving out family. I don't want to get myself in trouble this morning. Anybody else? Birthday, celebration, promotion, demotion. Just <laughs> amen, amen. Okay, family. Turn me to the Gospel of John. We are closing off our series on John, uh, chapter 11. Uh, next week, we will be uh, continuing with our series on the Psalms. We get into Psalm 4 next week. Um, and so we've, uh, we've, we've done some, some good ministry from the Gospel of John, and we'll be closing off uh, this morning, and then we'll pick up again next year uh, on the Gospel of John. When you're there, please give me an amen. John chapter 11. You might be all familiar with the, with the story and the trauma that unfolds in John 11 actually occupies the entire chapter. To be honest, I'm tempted to read the entire chapter to you. Uh, I will spare you and show you some mercy this morning. I honestly believe that the best feature of a sermon is the reading of the scriptures. Because there's nothing better that I can say or any preacher can say other than what's been read. But let's take our cue from verse 33 and uh, follow with me. I'm reading from the New King James uh, translation. Uh, it's the story of Lazarus being risen from the dead. The Bible says as follows. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they replied to him, Lord, come and see. The Bible says we, uh, Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in all of the scriptures. You can memorize this verse today and be a Bible quoter. Jesus wept. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who have opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again groaning in himself, man, he was agitated. He came to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone that laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the, the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
And I know that you always hear me because of the people who are standing by, I said this. You know, have you ever prayed with people in mind around you? I do that all the time. And Jesus goes on to pray and says, Lord, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was still wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. And many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed in him. But some went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. God bless to us the reading of his word. Just a quick recap and review, family. You know very well that the author of the Gospel of John is John the Beloved. He wrote the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He also is um, responsible for giving us the book of Revelation. Uh, John gives us the purpose uh, for why he wrote the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30, where the Bible says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not yet recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That was his purpose statement. He gives a similar statement in his epistle in 1 John chapter 5 where he says these things I've written to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may have eternal life and that you may continue, continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You never get to outgrow faith. You never get to outgrow faith in the gospel. You never get to outgrow your need for the gospel. Yeah. There is no post-gospel graduate school for the Christian. Yeah. Many of us assume that the gospel is a message that's just meant for the unbeliever. But the gospel message is equally as needed for the believer. In fact, Paul commends the church in Colossians chapter 1 for continuing their growth in the gospel. You never grow out of the gospel message. The cross and crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ will always be the center of everything we say, teach, and do. You never outgrow the message of the cross. Brown recommended an outline of John. It's a simple outline. Uh, of a prologue from verses 1 to 18 where uh, many scholars believe that uh, verses 1 to 18 is an early Christian hymn that the church sung. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and through Him and there wasn't anything that was made that was made without Him. They believe this, this was an early Christian hymn. This was a prologue. And then Brown continues to suggest that between verses 19 of chapter 1 and chapter 12 to verses 50, we have the book or division of signs where Jesus reveals the Father through the miracles he does. But John designates these miracles as signs. Because he doesn't want to bring our attention to the nature of the miracles, but to the purpose of the miracles. In other words, a sign does not exist for itself. It exists to point you to something else, to something greater. And so John is telling us that the miracles that Jesus done were not miracles in themselves, for you to look at these signs and wonders and, and to be overwhelmed with, oh no, they were pointing to someone greater. 
And so John gives us seven signs. His narrative in the Gospel of John is tied to seven signs. And then from chapter 13 to 20, we have what's, what Raymond Brown referred to as the Book of Glory. This represents the final week from the Thursday when Jesus is now returning to his Father. It's the Passion Week, and, and it reaches a pinnacle in the point of the narrative uh, where Jesus is now making his way and return back to the Father. Jesus returning to the Father speaks to the glory vacation of Jesus. And then John closes off with an epilogue which gives us an account of the post-resurrectional appearances of Jesus. Now, before we enter into what we typically do on a Sunday morning, a Bible talk, I want us to pray, Lord, speak to our hearts, minister to our hearts, Cause faith to arise in our hearts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. And I pray you bless this time we have together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Family, our Bible topic and talk this morning is simply the glory of God. The glory of God. Defining the glory of God is a difficult, uh, extremely difficult uh, task because the glory of God appears in various forms in scripture. The glory of God basically can be defined as the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, and the grandeur of all God's perfections. All these perfections that are displayed in his creative and redemptive work and acts in the earth, in order to make his glory known to those who are in his presence. Isaiah 6 gives us a nice understanding of what the glory of God is. Uh, Isaiah has this vision in chapter 6, and he sees the angels crying out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God can be seen as the manifestation of his holiness and his beautiness. Are you still with me, church? Piper defined the glory of God as the going public of God's holiness. God's holiness is his unparalleled, unmatched perfection and majesty. It's the essence of who he is. That's why when the angels are choosing and selecting words which best describe who he is, they can only find the term holy. Yeah. Holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty because this term best describes him. He's unparalleled. He's otherworldly. He's unique. He's not like you and I. He transcends what you could ever think or imagine. He's holy. The primary Hebrew term for glory is rooted in the word kabod. The term means weight or weightiness or heaviness. Collins explains that this is a technical term for God's manifest presence. The primary Greek term for the word glory is doxa, where we get the word doxology from. According to Aileen, doxa in secular Greek is, uh, is, is defined as to have a good opinion of someone, uh, to give a good report of someone. And in uh, a theological context, it means to praise or to give fame to. Now, the glory of God is used in, in about six ways throughout Scripture. Firstly, make a note of this. Uh, the glory of God is used as a designation for God himself. Yeah. You see this in 2 Peter 1 verse 17, where Peter refers to God the Father as the majestic glory. Secondly, glory sometimes refers to an internal, interest, intrinsic characteristic and attribute uh, of God, a summary of who God is. And so you'll find, like in the book of Psalms, 
24, God is referred to as the King of Glory. Thirdly, Scripture speaks of, of, of glory as God's presence. And we see this throughout, the, especially the Old Testament narrative when, when God's glory appears. His presence is made manifest either in the form of a pillar by, by fire at night or a cloud by day or, or, or a fire burning bush in the fire. God's glory is made manifest. But when we get to the New Testament, we see God's glory wrapped in a man called Jesus. Fourthly, the Bible depicts glory as a display of God's attributes, perfections and his person. And we see this. Uh, in John chapter 2, verse 11, when Jesus demonstrates the glory of God. Fifthly, uh, glory is also um, used in a way that, uh, that shows us the ultimate goal of God displaying his attributes. In other words, we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul points out to us that God chooses us, adopts us, redeems us, and seals us with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. Yeah. Sixthly, uh, glory sometimes points to a place called heaven. Hebrews 2 verse 10 tells us that God's desire is to bring many sons to glory. Yeah. And lastly, point seven, Giving glory to God may also refer to an appropriate response to God in worship yeah. and in praise. And Psalm 29 verse 2 urges us, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. What does it look like when a life is lived out for the glory of God? Can you imagine that for a moment? What would my life, your life look like if we actually lived for his glory? Could you imagine what God could do through us as a church, as a family, as a people, as a man, as a husband, as a wife? If you actually decided, I'm living for his glory. Yeah. Sounds cliche, but when the rubber meets the road and you ask yourself this question, it exposes our weaknesses. Yeah. Are we actually living for the glory of God? Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Yeah. Now, quickly, let's get into our, our text. Just a quick preview of uh, John chapter 11. Uh, are you still with me, family? John chapter 11 marks the fifth and final stage of the festival cycles. If you were here last week, we spoke about how the gospel narrative of John is tied to the festivals and feast of, of Israel. So last week we looked at chapter 5, how chapter 5 began with the Sabbath. Um, then John in chapter 6 leads us through to the Passover, chapter 7 to the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 10 to the Feast of Dedication, and then and in chapter 11 he brings us full circle back to the Passover. You'll see that in verse 55 of chapter 11. But this chapter also concludes with the official decision and plot by the Sanhedrin and chief priests to kill and crucify Jesus. In chapter 5, we saw the miracle and the discourse and conversation that Jesus had with the Jews that triggered the intent in their hearts to kill him. And when we get to chapter 11, we reach the official decision by the chief priests and Sanhedrin to pull the trigger. We see this in verse 47 of chapter 11. This chapter also brings a close to the direct miraculous 
acts of Jesus until his resurrection. And so this brings a close to the division of the book of signs. This chapter also represents the pinnacle and climax of the seven signs and miracles that John had designated in his narrative. The first sign was the turning of the water into wine, John 2. Second sign was the cleansing of the temple, also in John 2. The third sign was the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. The healing of the lame man in John chapter 5 was the, was the, was the, 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 the fourth sign. Uh, the feeding of the multitude in John chapter 6 uh, was the first sign. In John chapter 9, we have the healing of the blind man, which is the sixth sign. And then in John chapter 11, we have the raising of a dead man, Lazarus, from the grave. This is the most dramatic and explosive of all the miracles in the book of John. It's the seventh sign. Together with the first sign, the seventh sign and the first sign frame the public ministry of Jesus. The opening sign you'll find in John chapter 2, where the Bible recounts uh, Jesus at the wedding of Cana, where he turns water into wine. The seventh sign uh, concludes uh, the, all the seven signs uh, by showing us how Jesus raises a dead man at a funeral. So we have the joy of a wedding and we have the grief of a funeral that serves to frame the ministry of Jesus. Both the first and the last signs of Jesus also function to contrast uh, the signs of Moses in Egypt. The first sign of Moses in Egypt was to turn the water into blood. The first sign of Jesus was to turn water into wine. The last sign of Moses in Egypt was the death of all the firstborn and the seventh and climactic sign of Jesus in John was the raising of a dead man. Another Christological feature in the Gospel of John is that not only does John tie his narrative to seven signs and wonders of Jesus, but he also ties his narrative to seven self-descriptive statements of Jesus, known as the I am statements. He says in, in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. John chapter 10 again, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. All these statements affirm the sufficiency of Jesus to meet every need of humanity. Amen. These I am statements also affirm the deity and Godhead of Christ. Amen. When God presents himself and reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 3 Moses wants to know who it is that is speaking to him and that is sending him. And he says, I am. I am ascending you. This was a pivotal point in the redemptive history of Israel. And God reveals himself as the I am. He tells Moses, I'm coming down. And I'm going to redeem you out of the land of Egypt, the land of bondage. And I am going to lead you into a new life. And Jesus applies this truth to himself. He says, I am, I am come down. I've come down to also lead you out of a greater Egypt. A more sinister Egypt. And I am going to lead you to a new life. I am the way, follow me. I am the truth, follow me. I am the way, follow me. And so these statements and signs reveal to us the beauty and deity of who Christ is. And the signs and the statements are closely connected. But they are never more closely connected than in John chapter 11. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and declares to Martha in probably one of the most greatest conversations in scripture 
I am the resurrection and life. And so chapter 11 plays out for us in four scenes. In four scenes. You saw with me, family? Yeah. Give me an amen if you saw with me. Yeah. Nobody falling asleep here this morning in the name of Jesus. <laughs> amen. So let's look at the first scene. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 16 of chapter 11. The first scene is the prelude to the miracle. From verses 1 to 16. And verses 1 starts off by saying, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. Lazarus was the brother to Martha and Mary. What's interesting to note here is that this narrative seems to begin without any formal or grammatical relationship to the previous chapter. Makes no reference to the previous chapter. Yet when you get further into chapter 11, you see that there's deep links between chapter 11 and chapter 10. Because in chapter 10, we have, uh, we have a scene that plays out where we have a, a, an indignant Jewish mob that is attempting to stone Jesus to death. Yeah. And Jesus miraculously and successfully escapes and makes his way from Jerusalem to beyond the Jordan. And then as we get into chapter 11, Jesus is now called back into Jerusalem that he escaped. And he's called back into the same region by Mary and Martha, whom he loved. And verse 3 of chapter 11 says, Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were close friends of Jesus. Was it okay for Jesus to have had friends? Yeah. Jesus could have had friends, you know. He had close friends, and these friends lived in a town, village town called Bethany. Bethany was about three kilometers outside of Jerusalem. They were known for hosting Jesus and his disciples on several occasions. Mary has even have, uh, been said to have poured out an her oil, spike not oil, in anointing Jesus' feet with her hair. These were a family that knew how to host Jesus. They knew how to entertain Jesus. Jesus could be free. Jesus could be himself with these close friends. You need friends that you can just be free with. Not, not carnal with, <laughs> not wild and out of hand with, no, just be free and vulnerable with. And Jesus could find such a place in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So when Jesus receives the news of Lazarus' condition, uh, Martha and Mary were hopeful and they were expecting that Jesus would waste no time in coming to heal their brother. But Jesus responds in two ways. He says to his disciples in verse 4, This sickness will not end in death. But this sickness is for the glory of God and that God's Son may be glorified through it. Secondly, he responds to their urgent appeal and, and their desperate cry for him to come. By delaying two more days beyond the Jordan. Now what I want you to see in his first response is that Jesus says the sickness is not unto death, or will not end in death, but is for the glory of God. And there's something I want you to understand uh, in the whole affairs of, of, of God's redemptive works. We are so self-centered at times. But I want you to understand that the deepest passion and priority of Jesus was not the saving of man. Let that sink in. Let's give a pause. The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was the glory of God. It was the glory of God and then the saving of man. Not the saving of man 
and then the glory of God. No, the glory of God and then the saving of man. And the saving of man was for the glory of God. Secondly, he responds to their cry and their urgent request by deciding to delay two more days in Jordan. You ever had God respond to your desperate cries with delay? Yeah. Jesus leaves Martha and Mary waiting for him to arrive. And when he eventually shows up, it's too late. Lazarus is already dead. When both Mary and Martha finally get to see Jesus when he arrives, they both respond and greet him in the same way. Verse 21 and verse 32. They respond by saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He kept both of them waiting for a miracle that never seemed to arrive. The disciples had an idea, perhaps, of why he delayed. But he leaves Martha and Mary struggling with the experience of being left in God's waiting room. It's one of the most difficult places to be is in God's waiting room. One of the most difficult things to do is to wait on God. You will cry and you will weep and you will trust God for a miracle and you say, Lord, if you don't come through now, I'm never going to make it. And while you're sitting in God's waiting room, you see, soon begin to discover that God's clock and your clock yeah. are not the same. <laughs> your watch and God's watch is not synced. He works on a different premise. He works to a different drumbeat. He works and he aims for glory. And so there's three occasions when Jesus delays in scripture, when people desperately cry out to him. First occasion is in John chapter 6. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. There may have been more than 5,000. 5,000 was just the head count of the men. The woman and the children weren't counted, so it's possible there were 10, 15,000. And after feeding plus 5,000 people, out of, Dean mentioned it earlier, five loaves and two fishes, the people are awed and enamored by this kind of miracle-working prophet, and they're convinced, no, this, this must be the promised Messiah, so they want to forcefully install him as king of Israel. And Jesus slips out. And while he slips out, he tells his disciples, go out to sea, take a boat, I'll meet you out on sea. And these experienced disciples and fishermen went out on the boat. And the Bible says in chapter 6 of verse 17 that when it was already dark, Jesus had not yet come to them. And in a storm brood. And... For these fishermen and disciples to have been overwhelmed with fear for their lives meant that this was not an ordinary storm. This storm threatened their very existence and lives. They were in serious danger of losing their lives. And when they had lost all hope, Jesus appears, walking on the water, jumps in on the boat and calms the sea. Second occasion is when Jesus... Uh, Jesus is delayed in Mark chapter 5. Jesus gets a report from Jairus, uh, the a ruler of the synagogue at Capernaum, and Jairus comes to him and says, Lord, uh, teacher, my, my daughter is on the verge of death. It's an urgent appeal. Come now. We don't have the seconds or the Come now. And while Jesus makes his way with Jairus to his house, he is interrupted by a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. She touches the hem of his garment and he pauses and he stops. And, he, and for a few minutes he's looking and trying to find out who it was that touched him. Yes. Disciples look at him and say, Lord, but everyone's pressing on around you. Yes. What do you mean who touched you? 
And he says, no, this was a different kind of touch. This was the touch of faith. I felt virtually out from, from me. And so for a few minutes, he's, there's this delay, this interruption. And eventually they find the woman who touched the hem of his garments. And while he's still speaking to this woman, the news comes to Jairus. Your daughter is already dead. Don't bother the teacher any further. Can you imagine how Jairus felt? If we only got there in time, my daughter would be alive. But Jesus was delayed. But as soon as Jesus heard these words, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. He makes his way down to Jairus' house. He clears out all the professional mourners. <laughs> he takes with him Peter, John and James. He's in a circle of, of friends. And he comes to this lifeless body of a 12-year-old girl. And in Aramaic, he speaks the word Talitha Kumi. And life is restored back to that little girl's body. And she's risen from the dead. The third account we have of Jesus delaying is found here in John 11. What do we learn from his delays? We learn that his delays are not his denials. What do we learn from his delays? We, we learn that God's time is not always our time. And so we get into uh, chapter 11 and we're looking at verse and verse 5, I want you to pay attention to these particular verses. Is that the news comes to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Yeah. Note verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and the sister and Lazarus. Why is John bringing the love of Jesus in focus here? Carson states that John makes this reference to the love that Jesus had for this family, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, in these verses because Jesus' decision to delay two more days could have been viewed and interpreted as a lack of concern. In other words, Jesus' delaying could have been interpreted as him not having any love or concern for them. And so John is assuring us that love is not the issue. And sometimes we, we get in that space when we're in God's waiting room. Lord, don't you care? You said you love me, you provide for me. Where is this love when I need you? Where is the miracle I've been praying about year in and year out? We are so prone to doubt God's love for us when we're in a waiting room. But John is affirming to us and every single believer that God's delays are not an indication of his lack of love, but they are in effect evidence of his love. Some of you will catch that tonight. The decision to delay in Jordan ensured that Lazarus had been dead long enough. And that no one could in misinterpret the miracle as a mere healing or resuscitation. But Jesus waited for Lazarus to be dead four days so that God could get the glory and nobody else could get, get the credit. And so according to the Leviticus Rabbah, it's a rabbinical commentary, uh, there was a rabbinic belief that when a person dies, their soul still hovers over their body for three days. And the soul hovers over the body for three days, attempting to re-enter. But as soon as the soul begins to detect that the body is changing and decomposing, then it departs to heaven. And at this point, death is irreversible. You're dead. The Jews and, and the rabbis considered you are dead, 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 dead. And so Jesus waits four days. Four days. Because he has God's glory in mind. 
Give the Lord a hand, will you? Reasons why God delays. God's delays always serve his eternal purposes. Something we will never understand. Reasons why God delays. God delays to create room for his glory to be displayed. Why does God delay? God delays because he wants to enlarge our understanding of who he is. Imagine waiting 10 years for employment and the job finally comes through. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you did it. I waited that long, but you did it anyway. Reasons why God delays is that God's delays teach us to submit more thoroughly to his lordship rather than our own agendas and plans. Reasons why God delays God delays sometimes to allow the death of our own dreams and our own expectations and our own hopes in this life to cultivate within us a greater desire for his glory. Why does God delay? God delays to teach us to walk by faith. Amen. And not by sight. Amen. So if you find yourself in God's waiting room, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't lose the fight. Don't lose the fight. Keep believing. David said, I would have fainted had I not believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We get on to scene two. Scene two is the scene at Bethany where Jesus gets to the village from verses 17 to 32. In the second scene, Martha comes out to meet Jesus and she greets him with the, with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her words to Jesus are not a rebuke. As if she's She's saying that Jesus ought to have been here and he failed to be on time. No, these words rather express both a grief and the faith she has. Yeah, yeah. Faith in that, Lord, if you were here, I know he would have been healed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's an element of faith in what she's saying to Jesus. And Jesus responds to her in perhaps one of the most intriguing uh, conversations that now takes place. He says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha replies, but yes, Lord, I know he will rise again at the end of the age, at the resurrection of the dead. She has an appropriate orthodox traditional Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. We see that in Daniel chapter 12, that teaches about the resurrection of the dead. Daniel chapter 12 tells us in verse 2, many of those who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake one day. Some to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. First, First Thessalonians teaches us this as well in chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, For this corruptible body must put on incorruptible. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruptible, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then what shall be brought to pass is the statement that is written, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory. Jesus taught of this in chapter 5 when he said there'll come a time when the dead will rise when they hear the voice of the Son of God. And so she has an appropriate response. But Jesus is a master at planned ambiguity. So what you have here is a masterpiece of what's called a planned ambiguity. He uses intentional ambiguity as a literary tool which allows multiple uh, 
interpretations and applications. In other words, a, 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 an average teacher is content and happy just to tell you the answer yeah. and give you the truth. But Jesus is no average teacher. Yeah. A great teacher is not content to just give you the answer. They draw you in and allow you to come to your own conclusions. Because the truth you discover for yourself is a truth that lasts forever. And so the Bible in many places, the Bible is not interested in disinterested readers. If you are not interested in the Bible, you will find it a very difficult book to understand. Trust yeah. me. Because the Bible does not yield its fruit to the lazy. It's only when you engage the truth, when you engage the word of God, that the truth begins to find you and engage you. And so at one level, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. On the other level, Martha understands Jesus' words to mean that, yes, one day there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There's nothing wrong with this belief. But Jesus begins to expand her understanding of this truth. And in a very brief and concise and climactic statement, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the biggest statement that Jesus has ever made. Of all the statements he made, this is the most controversial of all the statements he has made. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, you will see in verse 24 what it means. Or the last part of 25, he said, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. When Jesus says, I am the life, verse 26, whoever believes in me, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So death, the first death is defeated. And the second death is defeated. Carson states here that Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief of what's to take place in the last day to a more personalized belief in him. Carson further states that just as Jesus not only gives bread from heaven, he is the bread. Just as Jesus not only raises the dead on the last day, he is the resurrection and the life. So while Martha is talking about this eschatological event that must still take place when the dead in Christ must raise, be raised from the graves, basically what Jesus is saying to her is that Martha, what you're talking about, you're talking to. Sure. Martha, what you're looking at, you're looking to. What you're looking for, you're looking at. You're looking at the resurrection. Because there's no resurrection without me. And Jesus turns to Martha and says, do you believe this? And I want to ask you that same question today. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? That he is the resurrection and the life? Think about a family. Do you really believe in the Son of God? Verse 27, Martha makes a declaration in response to Jesus' statement and says, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. But even at this point, she is not fully aware of Jesus' statements. Verse 28 to 32, once the conversation ends with Jesus, uh, Martha now attempts to 
draw Mary, her sister, to Jesus. And then we have the third scene, which is the scene of the miracle between verses 33 and 46. And the third scene of the narrative is marked now by a conversation with Jesus and Mary. So the Bible says in verse 32, the previous verse, that when Mary came to Jesus and saw Jesus, she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She responds the same manner Martha did, except now that she falls at his feet, weeping. And the Bible says that the Jews that were with her were weeping also. Now, the Greek term for the weeping described between Mary and the Jews is where we get the term wailing from. They were wailing. But the Jews who had accompanied Mary that were wailing were actually professional mourners because it was required in Jewish custom that even a poor family must at least hire two flute players and a professional weeper. And so these professional mourners come with Mary and they're weeping and the Bible says that Jesus reacts to this by being highly agitated, groaning within himself. He's upset. He's enraged by this performance. The Bible describes this kind of troubling in his spirit. In the Greek sense, it refers to the snorting of horses, suggests an outrage, an emotional indignation. And so we asked him immediately, where's the body? Show me where you've laid it. And then when Jesus gets to the graveside, we told that he wept. It's a short and very complex description of Jesus that scholars have debated on time and time again. So Jesus moves from being enraged, and when he comes to the gravesite of Lazarus, we're told that he begins to weep. But the Greek word describing his weeping is not the Greek term describing the weeping of Mary and the mourners because the term that describes his weeping here simply means to shed tears so Jesus was visibly crying and weeping but not wailing like there's no hope so when he's invited to the gravesite he bursts into tears and the fact of the matter is is that the reality of the grave disturbed him and so he wept in a similar sense, uh, you know, you've been to a funeral service before and I've experienced this. And in a similar sense, uh, you know, sometimes it's not until the body is lowered in the grave yeah. that you begin to break. Yeah. The first time you see someone get lowered in a casket, that's when you break. And I believe in a similar sense, Jesus was affected when he approached the gravesite. He is still affected by the grieving community because the Bible says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And so not to sentimentalize his weeping, but he was touched with the feelings of our infirmity and the reality of what grief causes, what death causes in the life of a family. And so the Bible says from verse 36, that the Jews said, look, look how he loved them. Look how he loved them. And some said, could not this man who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again groaned inside himself. He is agitated. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and, he, and there was a stone that laid against it. And Jesus said to them, roll away the stone. And Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. It's been four days. Jesus responds to her this, the same way he responds to Jairus. Let I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Only believe. And they took away the stone from its place where the dead man was lying. And now Jesus having spoken to his disciples about this miracle 
Jesus having spoken to Martha, Jesus having spoken to Mary, Jesus now turns in the conversation to his father. And he speaks with the father. And after having had a conversation with Martha and having a conversation with Mary, and after having a conversation with his father, Jesus now has a conversation with a dead man, Lazarus. And Carson states that when Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. He states that this very command of Jesus is indicative of his supreme power over death. What kind of raw power is this that even a dead man will obey? It's difficult enough to get the live folk to obey. <laughs> to get the live folk to get to church on time. <laughs> but this was a command to a dead man. What kind of power does he possess when his very command carries the power to create life? The one who spoke everything in existence by ex nihilo. You know, where Romans says he calls those things that are not as though they are ex nihilo in Latin, which means God spoke everything out of nothing with no material no raw materials no pre-existing materials he created nothing from within himself he, he, he just willed it to be and spoke and it just came about by the power of his word the same god who created by by ex nihilo found it no difficult task to speak to a dead man and say lazarus come forth and it wasn't Matter of time, Lazarus got out with his grave clothes, all mummified, all wrapped up. And at that point, it didn't matter to Martha or Mary whether Jesus came when, when Lazarus was sick or whether he was dead. Because it doesn't matter whether you're in a hospital bed or at a grave site. When God's word goes forth, it has the power to create life. It's all the same to him. Can you imagine the reaction of the people? When that dead man came out of his grave clothes, was the mummy part five. And then we have the fourth scene. And we're going to close on the fourth scene very quickly. From verses 45 to 57, this is the immediate issues of the miracle. Resurrection of Lazarus from the dead provoked two reactions. Jesus will always provoke two reactions. It's the doctrine of two parts. Remember when we spoke in Psalm 1? There's the part of the wise and there's the part of the fool. There's the narrow way and there's the broad way. The whole of humanity can be divided into two kinds of people. It's the doctrine of two parts. You have a response of faith in verse 45, which states, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus had believed in him, then we have the response of unbelief in verse 46, where some of them went away uh, to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus did. They were, they were pimpies, you know? <laughs> and from that day, when the Pharisees heard, hey, this man has the power even to raise the dead, we've got to make sure that he is annihilated because he poses a political threat to Rome. And Rome will wipe us all out. And then uh, one of the chief priests reply in verse 47, uh, not knowing that he is speaking prophetically. Uh, when someone asks, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and, and, and take us away from our birthplace. And Caiaphas, the high priest, responds and says, uh, uh, he says in verse 49 and 50, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that this is expedient for us, that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish for this man. And the Bible says in verse 51, Now this he, he, did, he did not say, 
uh, on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Even an unbeliever prophesied of his death. And the last sign of Jesus would result, this last miracle of Jesus in John 11 would result in the official decision to see him off to the cross. Can we stand, family? Everybody's eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we will never know the full, ex full extent 